millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that loves a bit of naughtiness. I'm Aoife Vrutnach, and I'm reimagining the prudery of the Irish censors. If you do like the podcast, could you rate and review it wherever you listen? For Patreon supporters, if you want to sign up, you get the episode early and without ads, as well as show notes. Check out the links in the episode notes for the merch, too. This week's episode features a novel that predated the Censorship of Publications Act. Mr. Weston's Good Wine was published in 1927, but wasn't banned in Ireland till October 1930. The new censorship board at this stage was just five months old and getting into its stride. In the same month, the censors banned two other novels by the same author, T.F. Poise, both published years before. It was one of the odder features of Irish censorship that old books were banned, just as much as new releases. I've always thought it was strange. Mr. Weston's Good Wine may have been widely read in the three years before it was banned. There could have been lots of copies floating around, going from reader to reader by 1930. But once it was banned, no library in the country could stock it. Public and lending libraries were really important sources of books, especially if you lived in the country. There was a real reason to ban older books. It did have real effects. But then there are lots of old books to choose from. How could the board choose some and not others? Like, it's obvious if a novel is famous for being rude, like one I've covered already, The Well of Loneliness. The obscenity trial about that book was in the Irish newspapers, so everyone knew it was filthy. Mr. Weston's Good Wine was never in court, So how did the censors decide to ban it? In this case, I'm going to blame the Catholic Truth Society of Ireland, known as the CTSI. To be honest, you could blame the CTSI for all the censorship if you really wanted to. The organisation lobbied hard for the law and helped promote banning in the early 1930s. Mr. Weston's Good Wine was probably brought to the attention of the censors by a diligent member of the CTSI. He, and it was probably more likely to be he than she, highlighted the dodgy bits in the book, filled in the forms, and posted it all to the censorship board. 
I have this vision of an outraged prude at a kitchen table, taking his pen to novels, leaning hard into the paper to emphasise just how disgusted he is. I mean, he is a smut seeker like me. I can see the attraction of the job. It's a lot of fun. But even I couldn't manage to read 4,000 books a year, like the CTSI volunteers did in 1930. Now, they couldn't keep it up. Nobody could. And soon most books were referred to the censors by customs. But at the very beginning, when Mr. Weston's Good Wine was banned, the CTSI directed a ton of books and newspapers to the board. So it's likely somebody had come across Poise and was outraged. Now for the drink to go with the book this time. Obviously, it should be wine. But the wine Poise is talking about is actually a Christian allegory. The wine is either love or death, depending on whether it's light or dark. There are a lot of layers here, so to avoid them, I'm drinking real booze, not allegorical stuff. The other choices offered in the novel are water, beer and gin. I'm choosing gin because it's the holy bottle, a consolatory tipple of an Anglican priest who doesn't believe in God. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. All I knew about this novel before starting it was that Poise was known as a writer of Christian fantasy, alongside, say, C.S. Lewis. Fine by me, I thought. Either Narnia or the Screwtape Letters. I'd be happy to read something like that. And the clues that this is a text concerned with Christianity are there straight from the beginning. On page two is the first reference to sin using very Christian language. So if you come out in a rash at language that shows the influence of Christian thought and writing, this book is not for you. I must also warn you that it enthusiastically reproduces Christian misogyny. In chapter seven, Mr. Weston says, How often I have to remind you, Michael, he said a little sternly, that in our trade report, the women come last. The characters in this novel are Mr. Weston, who's God, and Michael, who's, well, the Archangel Michael. Their earthly forms, for the purposes of this book, is wine salesmen travelling around the country in a little van. It takes a while for them to get to the village called Folly Downs that's populated with a variety of rustic rural types. There's a lot of English dialect here, and I think it's supposed to be a West Country dialect. If you watch the Poldark TV show, the Bogger peasants apparently speak with a West Country accent, so bear that in mind. I do love accents, but they're hard to read when you're not particularly familiar with them. And there's not enough money in the world to persuade me to make a feckin' fool of myself speaking West Country. So you got to imagine an isolated village of dialect-speaking peasants visited by God and the Archangel Michael, who speak a church-inflected standard English. But to get to the point, really, of the smut-seeking, I suspect when the Mumby boys are introduced in Chapter 8 that the censors were not happy. The Mumbies are the sons of the local squire, the big landowner in the village. And this is where Michael is outlining the main features of the Mumbies to Mr. Weston. Besides being the cause of the death of Ada Kiddle, who was drowned in a deep pond and behaving, until tired of them, in a merry manner with Ada's two sisters, Phoebe and Anne, under the oak tree upon the green, the young Mumbies now begin to boast pleasantly 
that nothing, either in earth or heaven, shall prevent them from ravishing Jenny Bunce. But strange though it may sound, up till this moment they have been prevented. So there you go, extramarital sex, under an oak tree, and intended rape. Given the censor's sensitive natures, this was enough to earn a ban. But Poise did not leave the subject of hijinks under the skies at this mild, factual description. What happens under the oak tree, who shags who and why, is returned to again and again. This plain account by Michael, where he's just laying out the facts, is expanded into something sinister, rotten and corrupting at the heart of Folly Downs. The Mumbies are taking advantage of their exalted social position and they shag the local girls whenever they can. At first, this is presented as merrymaking, as Michael said, harmless sport between willing participants. The young women and girls are only doing what's natural. It's in their nature to be wanton. None of the other village characters seem surprised or shocked by their carry-on. So far, so merry England. But Poise weaves a complicated and occasionally baffling plot around the sex under the oak tree. Although Michael tells us the Mumby lads are doing the business at the very beginning here, the village believes it's Mr Grunter who's having his way with the maidens. I know, Mr Grunter. Seriously. Anyway, this idea persists even though the man himself is plain out. And this is the description of him from chapter 7. Mr Grunter is old. He is also uncouth and flabby. His knees bend outwards as he walks He has a large homely face and his looks, to put them as nicely as I can, do not express wisdom. This old fellas hardly loves young dream. When I read that, I thought, okay, so he's the creepy old man who's going round assaulting everybody. But that's not how the village see it at all. Everybody seems fine with the decrepit old yoke fucking the young ones under an oak tree, because apparently the young ones are into it. They just shrug off the complete weirdness of this with peasant stoicism. Mr. Grunter himself apparently revels in this attention and doesn't tell anyone he hasn't touched any of the young maidens. All this deception is organised by Mrs. Vosper, who puts about the story that Mr. Grunter is the village Lothario. She does this to cover up for the Mumbies for whom she acts as a procuress. Are you still with me here? Because this is a lot of characters with strange motivations. I don't really understand why it's important that Grunter acts as a cover for the Mumby boys. It's not like anyone blames Mr. Grunter for being a seducer. They think he's cute for getting lucky so often. So why can't anyone know the Mumbies are the village studs? I don't know, I'm probably missing many allegorical points here by taking a realistic approach to the plot. At this point, I'm about a third of the way through the novel and pretty confused. But on the positive side, there was lots of dark, gothic, sexy stuff. Alice Grobe, the wife of the Anglican priest, gets almost a whole chapter to flirt and tease the reader even though she's actually dead. She's not your typical vicar's wife. She teases him and acts wantonly every time he sits down with the Bible. Wanton is a much-used word in this novel, and I feckin' love it. Wanton behaviour just sounds amazing fun. 
Because all of this sexual behaviour is towards her husband, within marriage, I did wonder why there were pages on her flirting. But then Poise takes it to an unexpected place by telling us that Alice saved a man's life once, with her flirting. That man was Mr Grunter, who headed to the oak tree to hang himself. And this is from chapter 16. The hour was late, the summer stars were out, and no one could have been more surprised than Mr Grunter when, on looking up to find the right bough to tie the rope to, he saw Alice Grobe nestled amorously in a fork of the tree. Mr Grunter could only stare at her, for she appeared to be wearing only one garment, and that a transparent one. Mrs Grobe, who had a very ready discernment, knew what he had come to do, and instead of fondling the bow again, she caressed Mr Grunter. No one could have been more astonished at such a proceeding, for the lady was as near naked as could be than the would-be suicide. He let the rope drop. Well, Mr Grunter, laughed Alice, I'm a woman, aren't I, and a woman is better than the gallows tree. Mr Grunter regarded her in a very awkward manner, and with some fear too, and when she slipped away from him he could only mutter as he turned to go home, I did go out to murder myself, and I do walk home an adulterer, or the next best thing to Ian. What the hell just happened here? Why is Alice caressing the boughs of an oak tree in her nightie? Is she riding the tree? I haven't a feckin' clue what's going on here. But there's a lot of suicide in this small rural hamlet. It's a dark violence that percolates throughout the text. Even if people aren't actually doing it, they're thinking about it, or thinking about someone who's done it, there's a lot of brooding over suicide. Folly Down is not a bucolic idyll. One young woman, Ada Kiddle, drowned herself after she was coerced by the Mumbies into having sex with them. This is hinted at at the very beginning, and then it slowly expands until the horror of it ripens and grows in the text. The atmosphere grows the way mould takes over a loaf of bread. First a tiny speck of green, but turn your back on it and the whole loaf will be stinking. Poise achieves an extraordinary atmosphere, in the final part of the novel especially, and he uses one really clever device. During the critical part, time is stopped entirely. The candles do not burn down and the clocks don't tick. The tension he creates is pretty amazing, especially since I'm finding it hard to describe it to you. It's just all very weird. My guess is that all the darkness and the horror arises from the perversion of sex that Mrs. Vosper represents. One chapter title is Mrs. Vosper Chooses Her Prey. I don't think it's a coincidence that Vosper makes me think of the word viper either. I mean, she is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. What Mrs. Vosper does is suggest to young maidens that being seduced by fellas is a great lark and very enjoyable. I don't know why this is such a bad thing, but anyway. She puts notions into their heads about carefree sex under the oak tree, tickling and teasing and messing. She made me think of the paintings of John Constable, those rural English landscapes bathed in dappled light. Except that Mrs. Vosper puts the sex into the hedgerows. You have to take it as read that extramarital sex is evil for this plot to work. Mrs. Vosper is corrupting the girls' morals and leading them astray to their doom. I would argue it's the Mumbies causing the trouble, but apparently not. 
They shag the girls, but Mrs. Vosper does something worse. She watches. To that end, she confines her husband in the woodshed while she watches the mumbies manhandle the girls on her sofa. I know this sounds pretty unbelievable. It's fairly mad. But here is chapter 13, when the downfall of the Kiddle sisters is described. Anne Kiddle showed a little more care of herself and didn't give herself up at almost the first assault as her sisters had done, though in so doing she only provided more entertainment to Master John Mumby, who, shielding himself safely behind Mr Grunter's supposed reputation for such affairs, very soon, after a struggle or two, brought the young lady to heel upon Mrs Vosper's sofa, while Mrs Vosper looked through the keyhole, but blamed herself for not having brought her glasses out with her when she left the pair together. Christian allegory, my arse, this is an excuse to wallow in sex. Mostly nasty sex. The most Christian part of it all is that the text blames Mrs Vosper, a woman, and not the local lads. She is very creepy, but... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But the evil suggestions she makes to the girls are so vague that I can't even read one out for smutty content. It's so ambiguous, I just don't see how it's pouring poison into their ears. Or maybe they're incomprehensible to me because Mrs. Vosper speaks dialect. If she's the rotten heart of evil sex, it's pretty mild stuff. I suspect her nastiness has force only if you think that young maidens are entirely empty-headed and would never think of sex if someone didn't tell them about it. Poise is pretty misogynistic. His women characters are either stupid, evil, blind or simple-minded. 
Well, with one exception, Tamar Grobe. She's the vicar's daughter and she's a sex-crazed religious maniac. Seriously, she is. But her lust is just fine because she's fallen in love with a painting on the pub and it's a picture of the Archangel Michael, done by himself sometime earlier because time travel and stuff. Okay, this is ridiculous. This novel is fucking mental. The pub is actually called The Angel. I mean, the plot isn't very subtle. But it gets weirder because Michael actually has the hots for her. And I was genuinely surprised and a teeny bit shocked when Michael started talking about Tamar's body. Chapter 8, which rejoices in the name Mr. Weston, is introduced to the women, uh, features the two lads chatting about Tamar. Michael is once again explaining who everyone is to Mr. Weston. Miss Tamar Grobe, a name I have written myself. Please tell me about her. With the greatest willingness, answered Michael, for I know her very well. She has a brown birthmark about the size of a sixpence just a little above her navel. You particularise too much, Michael. She is dark. She has red pouting lips. She is neither short nor tall. She has a cherub face and pleasant breasts, well suited to such a maiden. Her ankles are very small and her gait free though yielding, and she refuses to leave her father for anyone lower than an angel. Right, so he knows everything about her, even down to her birthmark. I get the feeling that godly surveillance has been put to some inappropriate uses here. A little bit later, Michael says, she even imagines it's sweet to die in the arms of her lover, for she cannot bear the thought that her body, if it be triumphantly deflowered by his body, should continue its existence upon the earth. She often dreams of perishing utterly in a vast flame of love. Feckin' hell. Tamar is very much an OTT gothic heroine. You won't be surprised to hear that she tends to roam the downs alone. Poise was a fan of Emily Bronte, after all. And Tamar does get her angel, in the end. Following Mr. Weston's advice, she goes to the oak tree, the very tree where the Mumby boys seduce and rape village maidens. This tree is at the heart of the village and the novel. Oaks are pretty potent symbols of the English landscape. The oak here is the tree of England. Remember Tamar's mother, Alice, was frolicking there in her nighty? So I think the oak is now a symbol for sex and wantonness or something. There are countless mentions of the mossy bed under it where everyone shags. But then Tamar meets her angel, her ordained holy lover, under the tree and will know bodily delight on said mossy bed. But that's okay, they will get married first, in a church. So the sex is legit. In the final pages of the novel, Poise beats you over the head with the symbolic meaning of the oak tree. Mr. Grunter curses it because it offers shelter to wicked sinners. Mr. Grunter curses it because it offers shelter to wicked sinners. Its branches cast a dark shadow so no one can see what's going on under it. After he curses the tree, it's struck by lightning and collapses. Like, this is the second last chapter, so leave subtlety behind. There's none of it left. You just have to accept this kind of thing. And I'm afraid it kind of gets a bit sillier. I'll read you out what happened to Tamar. Though the great tree had fallen, split in two halves by the lightning, the bed of moss still remained unspoilt. In this bridal bed lay Tamar alone. 
Upon her forehead there was a blue mark showing where the lightning had struck her. Mr. Grunter looked at her. As he looked, Michael stepped upon the green. Michael raised Tamar in his arms as though she were a babe. The stars shone again in the heavens. Two shining stars fell upon the earth. These stars moved as winged beings to Michael and, taking Tamar from his arms, rose with her into the skies. Mr. Grunter nodded approvingly. Okay, that's, that's totally fine. She's off to heaven and that ties up that plot line quite nicely. Once the oak is dead, there's no more bad sex. The unmarried girls in the novel are all safely shacked up and Mr. Grunter refuses to pretend he's the village stud. Sexual order is restored because everyone is married or behaving themselves. Maybe Poise chose the oak because it was associated with pagan England and druids and stuff, and this novel is about the triumph of Christian values. I don't know. Maybe. But in fairness to Poise, it isn't just heavy symbolism and OTT melodrama. There are a surprising number of laugh-out-loud moments, where a dry, sarcastic observation interrupts the storytelling. For example, this is Michael and Mr. Weston talking about the vicar, Mr. Grobe. You may think it a little strange when I tell you that Mr. Grobe never blames anyone, and God less than any, and that for a very simple reason, because he does not believe in him. As you no doubt understand from the appellation of Reverend before his name, Mr. Grobe is the pastor of the village, but in all folly down there is only one person who does not believe in God, and he is that man. Mr. Grobe preaches twice every Sunday, but he never mentions God in his sermons. He must then, said Mr. Weston, find the Holy Trinity a useful institution. That is a fucking genius line. I mean, nobody knows what the feckin' Holy Trinity is all about, and it is the perfect way to talk about Christianity and God stuff without actually talking about God. Love it. There was another hilarious moment when one of the village ladies was giving out to Mr. Grobe about his wayward daughter Tamar. This lady was scandalised because he hadn't sent his little girl to school, as befitted her class. And this is from chapter 11. If you let her run about these hills in the way she does, she told Mr. Grobe, who can say what might not happen? I wouldn't be in the least surprised to hear that the girl had fallen in love with a hay trusser or a badger. Or she might set up housekeeping with an old raven in a treetop. If a girl is not taught to play hockey, she might be found in a wood talking to a serpent. Oh, that is too delicious. If only Eve had learned to play hockey, the downfall of man might never have happened. Now, the Bible does pop up a lot, but mostly as a book itself, rather than what's in it, uh, its content, or the symbolism that permeates it. Mr. Weston keeps telling people he's a writer, but they're not impressed. When he offers to read a chapter from his book, I mean, the Bible, to Mr. Grunter, this is what happens. Mr. Weston was in no way abashed. I could read a chapter to you, Mr. Grunter, he said. Mr. Grunter considered for a moment. He pressed his hands to his ears. I be gone stone deaf, he said. "'Tis how I be taken at times,' he explained. "'So tis best we do not talk of what I can hear.' Mr. Weston looked at Mr. Grunter in deep disappointment. 
My book must indeed be out of fashion, he said sadly, for even Mr. Grunter will not hear it read. I can hear anything that be said about women or drink, said Mr. Grunter, who felt a little sorry for Mr. Weston's sad looks. So funny. It's just so irreverent. Without these satirical moments, I think the novel would be really difficult to read. Of course, the whole idea of Mr. Weston, or God, as a salesman is fundamentally amusing and is touched on throughout. Now, I did think Poise harped on about this too much, but it's possible the humour here lies in a deeper understanding of theology than I have. But that's enough with the old Christian theology. It's time for censorship bingo. When I started Mr. Weston's Good Wine, I was sure it would score very low, but about halfway through, I began to change my mind. So let's see how it finally measures up. As usual, we start with breasts. Yes, even the angels are obsessed with tits. There's not a lot of references, but there's enough for a tick. Bestiality. Controversially, I would say yes. I never get to tick this one normally, but I think I can here. There's a character called Luke who thinks that the beasts in the field have souls while humans do not. Until he falls in love with a girl called Jenny. There are some interesting passages where he blurs the line between the animals and Jenny, especially when he compares her eyes to those of a cow. Since he's burning with passion the whole time, I think this qualifies as sex with animals. Sex work. Well, yes, the Mumbies are very annoyed that the women in the nearby town ask for cash after sex, since they usually don't have to pay for it in their own village. Racism. Weirdly, no, and I say weirdly because I was fully expecting anti-Semitism in a Christian allegory, but I didn't spot it. Drugs. No, no drugs. Politics. No, not a thing. Swearing. No, unfortunately, the dialect is very clean and neat. There's no coarse language at all. Infidelity. Well, I mean, the vicar's wife is up to all sorts under the oak tree, and Mr. Grunter is married while pretending to be the local stud, so yeah, I think I can tick that. Then crime. There is actually a lot of crime in this novel. Firstly, the many references to suicide, and the Mumbies are not averse to raping people if they can't get consent. So definitely tick that one. Genitalia. No, I couldn't even find heavy symbolism about flowers or suspicious use of natural world metaphors. None at all. Next up, abortion. No. Orgies. Well, the Mumbies come close, but no, not really. Sexual assault. Oh yeah, definitely. Consent is certainly lacking where the Mumbies and the Kittles are concerned. And the lads do try to rape Jenny under the oak tree. Extramarital pregnancy. Yeah, the Kittle sisters are made pregnant by the Mumbies. That piece of information is casually thrown in there. It's not a big deal. Masturbation. No, definitely not. Sex toys. Unless you count the vicar's wife getting off with the tree, no. And I don't think I can count that really. Feminism. Absolutely fucking not. The women characters are pretty poor. It's a fairly misogynistic text, really. Next up, divorce. No, none of those fancy townways in this village. Contraception. Not even a glancing reference. I suppose the style isn't realistic enough for that sort of thing to fit into the text. Menstruation. 
No, it may be about earthly rural antics, but it's not that earthy. Blasphemy. This would have been insanely offensive to Ireland's conservative Catholics. Where to start with the offence? There's no church in it, apart from a priest who doesn't believe in God. And then there are hints that dodgy sexual stuff happens within the church building itself. People seem to get pregnant from things that happened in church. Very odd. Of course, the notion that God was a common travelling salesman would have caused heart attacks. And finally, the Archangel Michael as the world's best lover, well, that's unimaginably blasphemous. I'm fairly sure the religious content is what drew the censor's attention to it in the first place. So yeah, it earns a tick for blasphemy. Oral sex. No, the oak's shadows conceal the detail of any sex acts. Graphic violence. No, there's none, but death by suicide is creepily present a lot of the time. There's a malevolence in that, but it's not graphic violence, so I can't tick it. And finally, queer content. Well, yes, actually. Tamar, the vicar's daughter, uh, bathes naked in front of her servant, Jenny Bunce, and there's a lot of significant staring at nudity. Later, Tamar rather enthusiastically kisses Jenny on the lips. So I think we could tick that. There's, there's definite undercurrents there. In total, Mr. Weston's good wine gets 9 out of 25, which isn't a very high score. It is higher than many of the novels banned in the 30s. They usually get a 5 to a 6, but it's a lot higher than I was expecting when I began to read it. To be honest, it takes a while for it to get going. There's not a lot about sex until a third of the way in. I'm ambivalent about this novel. I don't know if I can really recommend you read it. You might find it a little long and the style is an acquired taste. But if you like gothic stuff, you love the last third. Mr. Grunter even digs up a corpse. The tension is remarkable in that last part. It's pretty unforgettable, actually. It was the highlight of the reading. Of all Poise's novels, it's the only one that's never been out of print so there's a constant demand for it. But it's pretty niche. It's not an obvious people-pleaser. If you're looking for a novel saturated with gothic sex, but no explicit descriptions, this is the one for you. Next episode won't feature any god at all, I promise. It's a courtroom drama from 1970s Ireland. The Irish Family Planning Association published a booklet about contraception that ended up stopping the censors for two whole years. Mad stuff, and there won't be an oak tree in sight. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.